Welcome to Crime Wire, a program dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved crimes and educating the public about various types of crimes and how to avoid becoming a victim. If you'd like to submit a case to Crime Wire or suggest a topic for a future show, please email us at thenewcrimewire at gmail.com. My name is Danny Griffin, and on today's show, I'll be talking with Joshua Melville. Josh is the son of Sam Melville who was known in 1960s history as the Mad Bomber. Sam Melville is considered by some historians to be the architect of modern political radicalism in the United States. In 1969, he executed bombings of eight government institutions. His motivations were stated as corporate imperialism, specifically the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War, social and racial inequality. Melville was subsequently incarcerated in New York's Attica Maximum Security Prison, where he waged a one-man war against prison administration. He was there in September 1971, when inmates took control of the prison for four days in what became the bloodiest prison uprising in U.S. history. He was killed by police when they stormed the prison, shot at close range while unarmed. Josh, welcome to CrimeWire. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, to start off with, uh, I'd like you to tell our listeners about your father, not from the media perspective, but from your own perspective as his son. Well, um, he was, you know, like a god to me when I was a little kid. You know, I was, I was he was a big guy, and I was a small kid, and um, he would put me up on his shoulders. And we would uh, we would wrestle, and he'd always let me win. Uh, he was like a, a one man amusement park, and I was the only one in line for a ride. So you and your dad had a good relationship then. We did. We had a very good relationship, and then uh, suddenly uh, he wasn't there. You know, my, my mom and he split up when I was quite young, and he became you know a, a typical uh, weekend father. And then, um, and then as time went on, as he became involved in more radical and underground activities, uh, he would miss a weekend here and there, and then it would go several weeks. And then I remember the camping trip that he took me on at one point when I was around uh, seven, and um, he told me he was going to be going away for a while and that, uh, that he loved me and that uh, no matter what happened, no matter what he heard, no matter what, what occurred, that I should always know that he loved me. And I asked him if I could go with him, and he said no because it's not a proper place for kids. And uh, he, he framed it at that point as working on a reservation to help Native Americans. And um, this was his way of telling me that he was going to be going underground and he was going to be making a commitment to a life of a revolutionary and I didn't think a lot of it at the time, uh, but then, you know, I didn't hear from him for over a year. And then when I did hear from him, um, it was on the telephone, and I didn't really recognize his voice. And he said it was, I'm your, I'm your father, I'm your daddy. And uh, I said, well, you can't be him because he told me he was going away. and He's not going to be around for a while. And um, I remember that conversation, and it, it was bizarre because I, many, many, many years later, one of his conspirators, uh, wrote a book, wrote an autobiography, where she overheard this conversation from the other side of the phone, from his side of the phone. And so um, I got to relive it uh, in reading it in her book. 
And um, and that was the last time we spoke. And then and then we communicated through letters. And I always thought these letters were coming from the reservation, the so-called reservation. And uh, then Natica happened in 1971, and the letters stopped. And uh, about a year later, a year and a half later, my mom uh, sat me down and uh, told me the truth about what was really going on. Uh, she had been told by school psychologists that, you know, you really need to tell him what's going on because his grades are failing, he's having trouble with school. And it's pretty clear that because, you know, there's this absentee father, that there's this fantasy in his head that, that he's just carrying around. So that's when I learned the truth. I was uh, about 11 years old at that point, and uh, she told me, well, you know, your, father, your father's dead, and uh, this is how he died. And, of course, I wanted to know why he was in prison. And so she explained it to me, and she, uh, she explained that he, he had bombed a number of buildings to protest Vietnam. And I'd heard of this, even being that young at that time. Uh, if anyone's close to my age, I'm in my, I'm my early 50s. Uh, at that time, bombings was associated with, was associated with terrorism, uh, the Munich Olympics, uh, things like that, nothing good. And so the first question in my mouth was, did anybody die? And she said, no, um, your father took very careful uh, measures to make sure that the bombs were planted in such a way that they only destroyed property and to ensure that no one was hurt because he was a pacifist. He would have been, he would have been horribly upset if anybody was, uh, was uh, killed in any of his bombings. So um, that was a relief, but not much of a relief. It was kind of like, you know, it was kind of the booby prize at that moment. Well, okay, so he didn't kill anyone. That's good. Uh, but there was still so much to process. And so I grew up really with my, with, with the, the father I grew up with was not the same father as the one I remember as a small child. The one I remember as a small child was like a hero and a god to me. And the one I had to grow up with was very confused. It was a mixture. So, so you were around 11 uh, when Attica took place and, and your father was killed. Uh, and then your your mom told you uh, the truth uh, about what had happened, why he was in prison and so forth. Do you feel that at that age you were able to comprehend what what was being told uh, or did that did, did that realization come about as you grew older and started to research and look into what happened well there's different levels of comprehension uh, i was able to comprehend the events but uh, it would take many years for me to put them in context and uh I could have, I guess, just decided, well, you know, my father was this bad guy, and thank God, you know, my mother got custody of me, and thank God that, uh, you know, she raised me well. And I could have written it off. And I, I know there are others, um, you know, there's a small class of people that I'm in uh, who have parents who are revolutionaries. That's what most of them do. But for me, maybe it's because I'm just uh, too much of a, of a thinker. I don't know. <laughs> I felt the need to kind of really understand the why of all this. Uh, why would he make these choices? Why would he choose? You know, he had a good life. He was, had a job as an engineer in a prestigious uh, design firm. Uh, we lived in a very nice apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. He had friends. He had a nice wife. He had a nice kid. He had what many people would consider to be the American dream. And he just chucked it all uh, for a life living in uh, an East Village, you know, hovel and uh, constantly on the lam 
and constantly uh, under assault by police and FBI, and uh, and ultimately you know, throwing himself and making himself a general in a in a battle against hundreds and hundreds of state troopers, which which he knew would you know resolve in his inevitable death. So. I had to really understand why would someone, why would a human being make these choices? And was there any chance that, that I could make these same choices? Because we were linked. And because uh, and many people had told me how much, how much I, 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 reminded, uh, uh, I reminded them of him. And so I grew up with this fear for a long time that I might make these same choices. And so it drove me to try to really understand the why of it. And uh, that's what resulted in the in the book that uh, that I'm working on now. Okay, uh, when when you first heard it at around age 11 of of what had happened, uh, you were I'm assuming you were probably surprised or or maybe shocked. Uh, and and then what was your attitude? toward your father when you heard that you know he had been a hero to you and like a god to you uh and now you hear that he was involved with the these activities were you disappointed uh, shocked did your opinion of him change how what was your reaction i was i was shocked um it was it was just such a disconnect from the person that i knew and I had expected that when I started doing some research on him, that um, there would be some explanation for the disconnect. Like maybe there was this incident that happened. Was he was he was he hit on the head? Uh, did something change him fundamentally? But uh, what I learned was that you know he came from a radical background. My grandfather, uh, William Grossman. Uh, was in the communist labor movement, was heavily involved in, in, in what was called the left, and, uh, and uh, was, uh, was, uh, was one of the people who began the taxicab drivers' union in New York. He was ahead of the Bronx chapter of the Communist Labor Party. And uh, my father grew up as what is commonly referred to as a red diaper baby. Uh, those are children of people who were involved in the communist movement uh, who had either escaped or didn't escape uh, being blacklisted by Joseph McCarthy. And he, he, and a lot of his friends were, were leftist friends. And then um, he departed from that when he met my mother, who was a very, you know, conventional uh, conservative woman. And uh, she wanted nothing to do with any of that. She wanted a normal life or a so-called normal life. And so she pulled him into a normal life. Uh, with a marriage and a child, and he tried out a so-called normal life for a number of years, for about five or six years. And then the country changed, and the so-called normal life became a revolutionary life. As the, as the 60s evolved and uh, our country headed towards a social revolution, my father felt uh, that there was... Uh, that he, he felt like he, he didn't feel like he was deviating from the normal life. He felt like he was returning home back to the, the life that he grew up with, with his father. And uh, except that now it was called the new left, not the, not the communist left. And the new left consisted of all these new uh, activist groups like SDS, which was Students for Democratic Society, uh, and, the, uh, and other emerging groups like the Black Panthers, and um, eventually the Weathermen and uh, the Yippies. 
And so he became a, a part of this wave, and uh, it appealed to his revolutionary sensibilities, and he, uh, he got swept up in it, and eventually, uh, more than swept up, eventually uh, transformed that movement by creating that movement's bleeding edge with his bombings. Um, it's looking back on it now, most people don't realize that real bombings in this country didn't begin until 1969. Uh, the 60s, as we understand it, didn't really begin until 1967, maybe 1968, and it really ended around 1971. So the, uh, the so-called decade of peace was actually only about four or five years uh, and, uh, and really bled into the early 70s. And he was at the leading edge of it. Uh, he was the first American at that time period to take a tip from like the IRA in Ireland and the FLQ in Canada and numerous other bombing groups throughout the world at that time who felt that protests simply weren't going to change public policy, that the governments uh, that they were involved in were uh, too invested in war uh, and particularly the Vietnam War to simply have a change of heart, that it would require a radical act. And so he and his, uh, his conspirators decided that actual bombings of, of, uh, of timed uh, high TNT devices was, was the only thing that was going to change policy. And it did work. And because it worked and because no one was killed in his bombings, many people considered him a hero. So in, in many respects, he was a product of the environment he grew up in. And uh, like you say, when when things changed, uh, he felt like he was basically coming home. When there was uh, the uh, the Vietnam War and, and how the climate in our country changed at that point. Uh, now, before we move on, Josh, I'd like uh, if you would share with the, the listeners any website or any inf- any place where they can go for more information about your dad. Sure. Well, to get more information about my father, the best place to go is sammelville.org. I uh, just spell his name, S-A-M-M-E-L-V-I-L-L-E.org. And that's a memorial website uh, that I put together, but it's had a number of contributors to. And it is one that is dedicated to um, historically accurate information about him. Because my father's been mythologized, um, and he's been footnoted in, Ooh, I don't know, uh, do, at least a couple of dozen books by this point, maybe more. And um, most of the information, most of the personal information about him um, has been incorrect uh, for all these years. That's another reason why I'm writing uh, my book, American Time Bomb, um, because it, it's time that a book came out that, that talked about his past and him personally in a more accurate light. The public information about him, that's, that's pretty accurate. We all know about the bombings, and we all know what was bombed and, and why they were bombed. Uh, but, but, uh, but his personal journey has not. And so that's the place, sammelvo.org, to get the most accurate information about his life and what he actually did versus what he, people think he did. Um, there is another website which I'm still putting together called americantimebomb.com, and that will be a website dedicated just to the book, the book's progress, and uh, and comments about the book. Okay, and we'll uh, the the book you're working on, the American Time Bomb. Uh, now this is October 2016. When, when do you feel that book might be published? 
Oh, that's a great question. Uh, well, as we speak, we're doing a crowdsourcing campaign um, to, uh, to try to uh, raise money to publish it independently. If we're successful in raising um, around $30,000, then I would imagine the book will be done and on the shelves in about a year. Uh, so that would be October of 2017. Uh, if we're not successful in raising all that money, uh, it looks like right now we're on target to raise about, to raise about half of that then it might take a little bit longer. It might be more like January or February of 2018. Okay, and, and where can people contribute to to your campaign? Well, all they have to do is go to Indiegogo, uh, Indiegogo.com, and then in the search function, type in American Time Bomb. They'll be taken right to the uh, to the project page. And they'll be able to uh, see all kinds of stuff. We have a great film clip there, a four-minute uh, uh, short that explains who my father was and what the book is about. And that film clip has inspired a full-length documentary, uh, which will probably be done around the same time as the book at this point. They can also read sample chapters of the book that are still works in progress, but nonetheless give you a, a taste of, uh, of what the book is going to be about and, and the tone of it. Um, and they can see the slideshow uh, that shows you uh, the story of, of Sam Melville. Uh, all that is available for free <laughs> on, the, on the Indiegogo page. And then, of course, if they feel moved by this, they can uh, make a contribution. Contributions are, go as low as $10 and go as high as $1,500. And so far, people have been pretty generous. I've been very moved and surprised. Oh, well, great. And, and how long is uh, your campaign uh, go on for? Is it until you raise the money, or is there a cutoff date? Or well, the way crowdfunding works, you're required to to put an end to the campaign. Um, so right now, the end of that of the campaign is scheduled for um, November second, uh, a day right before the election. We were trying to finish the campaign before the election because I had a feeling that after the election. Uh, people are going to be way too distracted. So um, we have an option to extend the campaign for another 30 days beyond that. I don't know if we're going to take that option. It's going to really depend on how close we come to our goals and how much longer we want to keep running the campaign. Um, most people don't realize that to run a campaign, there are daily and weekly costs. So uh, you know, for every dollar that gets donated to this cause, you know, the campaign only nets about 70 cents because of the costs involved in running the campaign. So that's going to be a, like a cost-benefit analysis question that we ask ourselves around November 2nd. But the very latest okay. it would be would be at the end of November. By then, it would have to be over. Okay. And um, we'll, we'll talk about this again before we, uh, before we end the show today. Um, I'd like now to, to talk about the Attica uprising for for sure. people who are not familiar with that, that took place in September of 1971, and as uh, I stated in the opening, it became the bloodiest uh, prison uprising in U.S. history. Now, your dad was was one of the inmates at the time, and after I believe it was four days, the uh, the governor authorized or ordered <clears throat> the state police excuse me, to uh, <clears throat> retake the prison. And during that storming of the prison by the authorities, by the police, 
is when your dad was killed. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Okay, and uh, he was unarmed at the time? Yes. Uh, it really depends on who you who you believe, um, but the majority of the evidence suggests that he was unarmed. Now, uh, you say the evidence. Uh, now, you've been researching this, your father, and, and uh, the circumstances surrounding his death for several years. What what type of documentation have you obtained or attempted to obtain, and what kind of difficulty uh, did you encounter in getting information and doing your research? Um, that's going to be an entire chapter of the book is just on how I got this evidence. Uh, I'll, I'll see if I can summarize it for you. Um, most of the evidence about Attica in general, even setting my father aside, has been kept from the public and still continues to be kept from the public. Um, a book came out recently called Blood in the Water uh, by, uh, by, a, by a historian named Heather Thompson. And it, of all the books that have been written about Attica, this is the one that really tells the fullest story so far. And it took Heather, uh, I, I'm in touch with Heather, and I, I know her quite well. It took her over 11 years to gather research. And as great as her book is, it's still incomplete, through no fault of her own, but because the government continues to keep evidence and information and reports about Attica sealed. And um, there's, they keep saying they're going to make this information available to the public, but then they keep deciding not to. And the reason that they refuse to allow this to become public is because the government knows, this is New York State government, uh, the government knows that what was committed on that day was mass murder. Uh, it was not a police action as we understand that the use of that word. Um, it was mass murder. Police went in uh, heavily armed, uh, where the state troopers went in heavily armed, and they killed unarmed men, um, half of which, by the way, were not prisoners, but were guards that were held hostage there. They killed their own men, and they just shrugged it off as collateral damage. Now, you know, we all understand the use of that term when it applies to war, but not when it applies to taking back, you know, a yard of unarmed men, which could have been resolved by simply cutting off their food supply or lobbing tear gas and waiting for the effects of the tear gas. So all of this violence uh, was completely unnecessary, and that's what makes it such a massacre, that it was unnecessary, and the real motivation behind uh, the need for this heavily armed assault was because state troopers were just angry. And we, we had reached the pinnacle in the social revolution where the establishment was looking for a battlefield to fight back on. And they chose Attica because Attica presented itself as, as that battleground. Um, so all that information is locked because the government doesn't want to release the names of the guards who had uh, who committed these atrocities? Some of them are still alive, or their families are certainly still around, and they could be open to litigation or or uh, private <clears throat> retribution. In my case, uh, knowing all this, um, it took me years and years of careful infiltration into various camps to liberate uh, the documentation necessary. And over the course of 20-some-odd years, I got to speak to both forensic pathologists uh, who worked on my father's autopsy. 
um, during the 1991 civil trial where the prisoners sued the state of New York uh, for wanton disregard and won that lawsuit. Um, I was invited up by the attorneys as part of the class action because uh, my father was part of the class and therefore his only heir were, was the litigant. Um, I, I was I, I, I intermingled with the attorneys and two of the attorneys uh, were very kind to me and allowed me into their evidence room, at which point I used that opportunity to try to gather as much information as I possibly could about my father's death. And I managed to get autopsy reports, ballistic reports, and then I came across what I would consider to be the holy grail in this case, which was uh, the confession or the report by the man who shot my father. Uh, He filed three separate reports, each of which uh, contradicted each other in, in, in recanting the incident uh, that he saw my father in the yard and opened fire on the the information in those statements uh, is enough to build a um, a recreation of what actually happened. Even though much of the information in those statements is false, uh, you can use that false information uh, to eliminate what what could not have happened. If that makes sense, and if you align his report with the ballistics reports and the autopsy reports, and you have an understanding of the geography of Attica, uh, then you can recreate very clearly how my father uh, was murdered. And I can state conclusively at this point in time that it was a deliberate murder uh, committed by a person who shot him within 10 to 15 feet at close range in the chest with his arms uh, free of any devices um, in the act of surrender. And I can state that emphatically, and you know, when I publish the book, all the information that I found will be in there to prove that. Josh, the um, the documents you got to look at and, and these three different statements by the officer who shot your father, um, uh, I, I'm not asking for the name. I don't want it, if you know it, but I'm just wondering, was the name available to you specifically, or was it redacted uh, from the report? The name was available. So you, you know the identity of this person? I know the identity. It's now public information because I, I gave this information to Heather Thompson when she wrote her book, and she published his name in her book. So if you want the name, I don't mind, I don't mind stating it. Okay, so, so it is out there. It is out there. And the okay. person was, became, this, this state trooper became a fairly prominent attorney in the state of Buffalo. So he went on to have a rather nice life and had two sons and married and had a relatively normal life. Um, your your dad and his, uh, was he a part of uh, a specific group of the day, uh, a radical group, or did he have kind of his own crew, or how did he fit in with with other groups of his era? <coughs> Do you mean at Attica or prior to Attica? Uh, prior to Attica when they were doing the uh, the bombings. Sure. Well, prior to Attica, a number of large factions uh, had evolved in the new left. You had SDS, which was kind of fading out. SDS was morphing into what was becoming the Weathermen, and the Weathermen was a more radical activist group uh, that was doing uh, demonstrations against Vietnam 
and against racism. And then you had the Black Panthers, and then you had the Yippies. These are the three of the largest organizations. There were a lot of other smaller ones. Uh, there was uh, the Crazies, and uh, can, I, can I say expletives on this show? Sure. Okay. There was a group called the, the Motherfuckers, uh, which was short for the Up Against the Wall Motherfuckers. They were a very prominent group in the East Village. The Crazies, the Weathermen, SDS, uh, the Yippies, and the Black Panthers. These, these components made up what we now call today the New Left, which started in around 1964 and reached its pinnacle in 1969, 1970. Now, from the Weathermen grew the Weather Underground, and this was a bombing group, uh, an underground bombing group that took a cue from my father after his arrest. So my father kind of disaffected himself from all of these groups because he saw all of them as just basically a bunch of talk. And he felt that, that nothing would really happen until things be, be, uh, were being destroyed, physically destroyed. And prior to this, you did have the Black Panthers who were lobbing small bombs, pipe bombs, Molotov cocktails into ROTC centers and police stations. But no one had done in America a big public bombing. So my father's first bombing was the Marine Midland Bank. Um, actually, the first bombing was the United Fruit Company, uh, which was on the Hudson Pier. And the second one was Marine Midland Bank. And then the, uh, then the federal building uh, in Foley Square downtown. And these were large explosions that took out entire floors and caused millions and millions and millions of dollars of damage. And it's a miracle that, that no one was killed during them, but no one was killed because of his engineering background. He knew where to place bombs and how to place them in such a way that they would cause only property damage. And this was brand new. So he was his own group. Him and his three or four co-conspirators, five conspirators, were their own bombing group. However, after the arrest and after the pub, very, a very public trial, other groups now took a cue from this. And that's when the weathermen became the weather underground. That's when the Black Panthers became the BLA, the Black Liberation Army. That's when the PLO started to come up. This now was becoming the new normal. So... In essence, he created the bleeding edge of the, uh, of the New Left movement, and other groups evolved out of what he had done. And one group actually named themselves after him right after his death and called themselves the Sam Melville Group. Uh, when, now, this, this uh, police officer who uh, killed your father, had, obviously he was never charged criminally or uh, or suffered any type of disciplinary uh, administrative action. So, uh, in, in fact, uh, are you aware, were any of the uh, police officers involved in retaking Attica, were any of them ever charged or disciplined? No, not a single one. Okay. Um, the state saw to it that the, uh, the lawsuits that followed um, were framed in such a way that the, uh, the officers themselves could not be charged. Uh, Rockefeller was charged. Uh, Commissioner Oswald, head of the prison commission, was charged. The prison <clears throat> warden went. Mancusi was charged, and several other people were charged, but not uh, state troopers. Now, this particular state trooper, excuse me, this particular state trooper um, did receive a mild form of disciplinary action. Uh, there were two internal investigations into Attica, and at one point, uh, he was called to testify. Uh, rather than testify, uh, he had to resign from the state, troop state troopers. First, he was transferred to another division, uh, 
and then he was asked to resign, uh, which he did. And from that, for that point, he went to law school and became an attorney. I'm curious because I uh, interview the, the survivors of, uh, of victims of crime, and in many cases, when they try to get information from the uh, on, on these cold cases, they try to get information from the police agency involved. Uh, they are quite often told that uh, because there's an open investigation that the Freedom of Information Act does not apply to an open police investigation. Um, Did you encounter when you were attempting to, uh, or while you were attempting to get more information from, uh, from the government and from records and files, did you run into anything like that where, where you, you went East Freedom of Information Act and were told that uh, somehow this is still an active investigation or an open case? Did you encounter that at all? That's a great question. Um, let me start off by saying uh, for every, anyone out there who thinks that the Freedom of Information Act is actually a functioning method for an average citizen to get uh, classified information, I will say this. <clears throat> the Freedom of Information Act is anything but free. <laughs> to actually get information from the government, uh, you are going to have to spend thousands of dollars with attorneys. The filing fees alone are relatively cheap. And back in the 1990s, I attempted to get my father's FBI file. They told me that it was 3,000 pages and that they were going to charge me 25 cents per page to make Xerox copies of it. At the time, I was a starving uh, musician <laughs> and didn't have you know, the, uh, the money uh, put this up. Years later, when I did have the money, uh, I attempted to get this file, and then they came up with, uh, well, we've changed our standards for um, how these files are given out. Because at this point, we're now in the digital age, and things didn't cost 25 cents a page. They just threw them onto a disk. And they didn't even charge you for the disk because I guess they just they didn't have the they, they didn't have the audacity to say send us five dollars for a for a CD ROM. <laughs> uh, they they didn't go that far. But what they did instead is they made it so that you cannot really get these papers without filing some kind of court motion. And um, and then when you get the when you would get the papers, so much would be redacted that you'd have to file a second set of motions uh, to get unredacted documents. Um, in fact, one of the things we're raising money for is to get redactions on several documents that I ended up, that I finally did acquire after 20-some-odd years of trying to get these papers. Um, what they did at the uh, Department of Justice in regard to freedom of information papers is they used to, they categorized reports uh, using their own nomenclature. So they had what are called large, and this is very official-sounding terms, large reports and small reports. You might want to write that down in case you forget it. Uh, Large reports were any reports that were over um, a thousand pages and small reports were any reports that were below 500 pages. To give you an idea, by the way, of how intense some of these files were, uh, that's how many, you know, a thousand pages was not considered, you know, 500 pages rather was not considered a large file to have on an individual. So if anyone, any of your listeners are out there, if you've ever participated in a demonstration, signed a petition, 
uh, been involved in anything remotely uh, leftist or, or political, you probably have a file about 500 pages long sitting in some government file box. <laughs> then they change the standards. Then they change the standards, and they change the standards for that. A large report was now 500 pages, and a small report was now 50 pages. And most of my father's files, remember, it's not one file. I'm not asking for the Sam Melville file. My father's files boil down to 13 different files. And so, uh, but almost all of them <laughs> were over 50 pages. In fact, all of them were over 50 pages. And so now, if your request was for a file that was a, quote, large file of over 50 pages, that's it, just 50 pages. Remember, we're going from a situation where the average file was 500 pages, and now they're reclassifying something as 50 pages, which means that you're guaranteed, no matter what request you give them, you're guaranteed to fit into the large file category. So if you fit into the large file category, your request will take approximately three years to process. And they tell you that this is the backlog that they have and that they're short-staffed and that there have been budget cuts. So you can get free papers from the government if you're willing to wait years and make multiple requests. And the only way to expedite this would be to hire an attorney. The exception to this are large papers like the New York Times or the LA Times or the Wall Street Journal or Washington Post. If they put a request in, it will get turned around very quickly. And the reason why is because the government knows that if you delay any of those papers, they have a very large budget pursuing the government. They have ongoing revolving doors of lawsuits suing the government for Freedom of Information Act papers. So the government has decided that it's more benefit cost-effective cost to simply comply with their requests than litigate with them. And so if you're a large paper or a large institution, you will get your free Freedom of Information Act papers. If you're an average citizen, you will wait years and spend thousands of dollars. Now, interestingly Can, enough, I managed to – go ahead. Did you want to interrupt? I, I just wanted to – I can't help but ask this question. I do not want to sure. get into politics, but it is political season, and, and one of the terms going around on the campaign trail is a rigged system. Now, I can't help but think that your uh, – description of dealing in, uh, with the FOIA and, and trying to get government records where you have the, the powerful, in other words, the uh, you know the newspapers who have the, the money for attorneys and blah, 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 versus the average citizen. Uh, it, it, would you consider this kind of a rigged system as, as far as trying to get information? There's no doubt that it's a rigged system, but I, I don't think it's a political question because I believe it's bipartisan. I don't believe that one, the Republican or the Democratic Party has a greater interest in maintaining secrecy. I would wager that both parties are in favor of this type of rigging. Okay. Okay, I couldn't help but ask that. Uh, anyway, go, go ahead. Sure. I didn't mean to interrupt you. So here's, what's, here's the irony of this. Um, the irony of this is so I, I was basically unable to get most of my father's files. I had either waited too long or I, I didn't understand the way the system works, and there's no way to understand it until you're actually involved in it, unless you hire an attorney. And then what I came across was I had learned by dealing – when you, when you apply for FOIA documents, they assign a caseworker to you, and you actually get to speak to this caseworker on the telephone, which I'm sure they'll eventually stop that as well. 
But in speaking to my caseworker, um, I learned that there were several other requests from my father's files that were complied with in the last three years. And this, of course, raised my curiosity. I said, well, can you tell me who they were? No, that's, that's privileged information as well. You can't find out. It's privileged who, who publicly asked for publicly available documents. But through the miracle, I guess, or serendipity of this process, because I had so many feelers out to various uh, historians and various other people who are interested in my father, I learned the name of the person who had uh, had the most access to my father's files over the last three years. And this was a, 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 a person who worked for, for, the, for naval intelligence. And mm-hmm. because they worked for naval intelligence, of course, they got instant compliance uh, for all these files. And, um, I, I, they, and they were writing a dissertation. They, they had gone back to college and were writing a dissertation, and my father was a central point of their dissertation. And so they were able to get about 1,000 pages in FBI files that I wasn't able to get. And so I said to my caseworker, well, if you've already complied with this person and this information is already out there, why don't you just send me exactly what you sent them? And this kind of, this kind of, you know, they got stymied at this request. It was, they, they couldn't think of a way to not comply because to not <laughs> comply and not send me those papers would be a, a deliberate act of discrimination. It'd be admitting that, that a person who works for naval intelligence has a greater right to this, who's now a private citizen, has a greater right to this information than the son of the, of the person who this information's about. They just couldn't think of a way around it, and so they sent me the files. Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah. So thanks to, thanks to a government agent, <laughs> I was able to get secret files that the government wouldn't give me. And, uh, and boy, did they tell me a lot. And once I got the files, I could see why they didn't want these made public because there's so much, there's so much surveillance information in them. This is what educated me to understand that everybody, I guarantee that you have a file with the government just for having this radio show. And it, it okay. shows me the depth and the breadth of which the government goes to uh, accumulate information about private citizens. And so when the whole Snowden thing erupted, um, it, it did not surprise me in the least. I know it shocked a lot of Americans think that the NSA has all is monitoring phone calls and emails, but this has been going on forever. And as technology evolved, it's natural that the government's methods of surveillance would evolve right along with it. And so I was not surprised by WikiLeaks or Snowden's revelations, and, um, and nor should any American be surprised. And I, I don't think that the revelation of this through WikiLeaks or through Snowden has slowed down uh, the government or the NSA one jot. And so anytime a politician uh, gets on television and says, well, we're no longer doing that, I simply refuse to believe it. It is so endemic in the pathology and the behavior of our government to monitor its citizens that there is not a chance that they're going to stop just because of one week. That's my opinion anyway. Oh, that's a very scary thought, I'll tell you that. Um, time's going by so quickly here, Josh. I'd like to uh, briefly touch on how the children of radicals and terrorists suffer for their parents' choices. Did you notice any uh, 
thing did you experience anything where you uh, perhaps in a negative way were impacted by what your father did I was greatly neg- neg- negatively impacted um, back in 1969 1970 um, one person in every 270 had in this country had a had a parent or close relative incarcerated. That number today in 2016, 2017 has jumped to one in 50. That's one in 50 people in this country have someone who's incarcerated. Uh, If those statistics progress the way they have been, then it won't be more than 10 years or 15 years before one in 10 or 12 people in this country have someone incarcerated. Um, And what happens is it doesn't just affect the person who's in prison for every person who's incarcerated. There's like a solar system of family members who are deeply and negatively impacted by this. Uh, Children of people who are incarcerated have, have a 10 times as great a chance of not finishing college or even going to college have five times as great a chance of not marrying. And almost all of them have developed very um, severe uh, contempt for authority and contempt of government, which, of course, just leads to more arrests. We all know what happens when you resist the police, even if they pull you over for, uh, you know, running through a stop sign. You, that, that, that to an arrest or a death if you misbehave. So this is a serious problem, not just for me. And one of the reasons I'm writing this book is because if the, if the mass incarceration uh, epidemic in this country gets any worse, we will soon be living uh, in a police state where everyone you know, where mo- almost everyone you know has someone who is involved in the penal system or the justice system, either in a negative or a positive way. And this will become our country's largest commodity. And that would be a shame to go from a country where we were making automobiles and um, machinery and um, software to go to become a country where we're just in the business of incarcerating most of our citizens. That would be hard. And so it doesn't just affect me. I'm lucky enough to have transcended it. I live a pretty decent life. I have a nice home in Los Angeles. I have a wife. I have two kids. I I have made a good life for myself. But I know what it took for me to get here. And I know that most people um, won't have the resources to do that. And so one of the reasons I'm writing this book is because I want to put more attention on a very serious matter that's affecting our country's economy, even if you're the kind of person who has a a staunchly conservative view that, well, those people in prison deserve what they get. That's a fair view to have. But this is a problem that will be affecting your life because uh, chances are your neighbor will have someone who's in prison or your coworker or possibly one of your children. Um, And then at that point, it does become your problem. And so my appeal to, uh, to all Americans is that we focus on this problem before it is right next door to us and not just in the inner cities or in ghettos. Yes, very, very good points uh, and, and something people certainly should be aware of. Um, we're just about out of time. In fact, we are out of time. Uh, before we wrap up, uh, Josh, could you give us that website again to get more information? Sure. sure. For my father, uh, sammelville.org. For my book, americantimebomb.com and if you're listening to this now please go to indiegogo and at least check out our video check out what we have there and if you and if you feel moved 
please make a donation uh, to this project. This is a worthwhile project. I want everyone to know that not a dime of the money that's raised goes into my pocket. All of this goes towards the production of the book. Okay, Josh, we've got to wrap it up here. Thank you so much for being here and sharing uh, the story. It's really fascinating. And uh, the best of luck with getting that book out. And I certainly will be uh, among your first purchasers when it when it is published. Well, thank you. I appreciate being on the show. Thank you very much. Okay, the best of luck to you and to our listeners. Thank you for being here. Until next time, stay safe, and we'll talk to you again on CrimeWire.